This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, I'm Linda Moron. Welcome to this episode of Getting Lit with Linda. This first series, if you've been following along, is devoted to English language writers of Quebec and Canada. In the last episode, I looked at a novel by Rawi Hodge, and today I'm going to discuss a novel by Madeleine Tien. So on today's episode, I'm going to do something a little unusual. I'm going to share an experience that I had related to the fact that I have recurring back pain. It's a bit of a risk, I know. But um, in spite of the odd way of starting, I think uh, it'll make sense by the end. So hang out with me for a few moments and let's just see where this goes. On some days, my back pain is better and other days it's worse. Anyone out there with back pain, I know you're going to know what I'm talking about. So to get relief, I do yoga. Sometimes I take a hot bath. I've also visited different kinds of practitioners, usually on the recommendation of good friends. One recommendation led me to an osteopath on the west coast of Canada in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I used to live. At that time, I didn't even know what an osteopath was. But I went because my friend wanted to help me, and quite frankly, I was in so much pain I was willing to give it a try. So I went. I had to lie down on one of the massage tables so that he could examine my back. And then he asked for permission to place his hand on my lower left back. So I agreed. And no, it's okay. He didn't do anything inappropriate. It's really not that kind of story. Here's the part that's odd. When he did place his hand there, something very strange happened. It's an event that's just difficult to explain, but... What I can say is I suddenly heard walls crashing, as if a building had come collapsing to the ground. And then the next thing I knew, I was wailing at the top of my lungs, crying out to the osteopath from the end of what seemed to be a long tunnel. I didn't feel like I was still in the room, and I couldn't really see anything. I could hear him urgently speaking to me on the other side of this tunnel. His voice was muffled, and he was insisting that I tell him what was happening that he couldn't help me if I didn't. I was sobbing, but the reasons for it were really strange. I said it wouldn't make any sense, but I told him anyway. I told him I was weeping because I had failed to protect my mother from things that had happened to her. I wasn't even clear what those things were. It didn't make sense because somehow I understood that these were things that happened well before I was born. And at the time of this event, my mother was very much alive and well in Toronto. In a flash, I was back in the osteopath's office from wherever it was my consciousness had gone. He was pale. I swear to you, he looked as unsettled as I felt. What was that? I asked him. I thought it was something that, as an osteopath, he just, I don't know, he did or provoked. I thought his patients had strange experiences like that all the time. But I was even more unsettled, a little more agitated when I realized he actually had no idea what had just happened. When I relayed this very strange event to another friend of mine, he responded quickly with one word, epigenetics. He gave me some basic pointers, and then I went to go and look it up. 
I'm no scientific expert, but apparently there are research studies surfacing that show how trauma is passed down from one generation to the next. How? Well, without actually changing the fundamental structure of DNA, trauma adds these tiny chemical tags in response to the said traumatic condition or events. So, today I begin with a personal story about epigenetics as one way of understanding Madeleine Tien's incredible novel, Do Not Say We Have Nothing. And I'll return to it and make sense of it toward the end of this episode. In case you haven't ever read anything by Tian, be prepared for an extraordinary writer. This particular novel won two of the most prominent literary prizes in Canada, the 2016 Governor General's Award and the 2016 Scotiabank Giller Prize, and it was shortlisted for the International Man Booker Prize as well. Of course, it's not her first novel. It was also preceded by other books, Simple Recipes, Dogs at the Perimeter, and Certainty, each of which have also won well-deserved accolades, and each of which I've actually taught in my classes. This novel, published by Knopf, opens in contemporary Vancouver in British Columbia. It shifts back and forth, though, geographically, from Vancouver to China, and temporally to some fairly turbulent periods in Chinese history, including the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests, the land reform campaigns, and the Cultural Revolution. It is, as you might imagine, a novel of epic proportions, effectively a multi-generational saga tracing the lives of multiple characters and of their children and grandchildren over time. It is, therefore, a substantial book, not just in terms of its literal size, but also in terms of its imaginative scope. I thought my undergraduate students in past classes would balk at its length. It's not something that you'll really be able to complete in one sitting. But no, they not only read it, many of them chose to write their final papers about it too. It was a pretty impressive class. All of that to say, it's really that good, and it's worth patiently reading through it all. Now, I don't have time to get into the intricacies of the historic context that informed the novel for today's episode. They are pretty critical to understanding so much of what these characters are experiencing. So I'm not being dismissive. It's just that I really can't quite give them the attention they deserve in under 30 minutes. It's going to be hard enough to do this novel proper justice. I do discuss them in detail in my undergraduate classes, but here's what you need to know in terms of the plot for this particular episode. There are two main characters that are a crucial part of what we're going to call the frame narrative. That's the exterior part of the story. And they're part of the contemporary generation. I'm pretty sure I'm going to mispronounce the names. I even consulted my former brilliant student, uh, Janan Chan, who provided me with recordings from another friend of his about how to pronounce them. So I'm going to try. I'm just going to apologize in advance for any botched attempts. So... Zhang Liling, also referred to as Marie, and Aiming, who, as the survivors of two separate families, find their way to Canada. They're trying to understand the legacies of their respective lineages and how these legacies interconnect, why they do. It's a mystery shrouding the lives of their fathers that propelled that narrative forward. What is their family history, or their respective family histories, and Why is it so much of a secret? What connects these two women? 
As a mathematician, Marie is teaching about the symmetry of Box-Goldberg variations, a point of relevance to the novel, because it informs its structural underpinnings. So, sidebar, the Goldberg variations, written by Bach and published in 1741, consists of an aria and about a set of 30 variations. The variation is a formal technique where material is repeated in an altered form. The changes could involve melody, rhythm, harmony, counterpoint, timber, or a combination of these. I'm telling you this because in the context of this novel, I want us to think about how generations in a family might be seen as variations of previous ones. The other musical technique I want us to reflect on, one that my former student Sky Stowe wrote beautifully about, is called counterpoint, and that informs the design and structure of this book. The crafting of this novel is superb. For today's episode, just note that counterpoint is a compositional strategy. It involves two lines that are melodically strong, but rhythmically different. They're placed on top of one another, and that's done to create harmonies that have an entirely new sound. The lines are both independent and interdependent. That the material is repeated in an altered form is relevant not only to the structural design of the novel, but also to its thematic interests. Tien would tell us, variations don't only happen in music, they also occur in family lineages. But more of that shortly, I'll come back to that. Musical counterpoint also offers us a literary metaphor. Narrative lines operate both independently and dependently in relation to each other. So now, back to Marie and her plot line. Marie offers us one musical or narrative line, and Ai Ming another. And these two are placed alongside each other as they also reach back into the past to decipher the meaning of their connection and of the mystery that enshrouds their respective fathers' lives. Marie's search for origins and connection and records of her family are heart-rendering. They're a crucial part of her story, even as she initially denies that she has any need for this. She really does have need. She's quite young when her father, Kai, dies. This is partly why she knows very little about him. The other part, of course, is that as a result of China's cultural revolution, Marie's ancestors weren't able to retain family records. They had to figure out a way through stories and art, specifically and relevantly music, to convey a sense of intimacy in family narrative. She tries to assemble the fragments that she remembers about him to create this coherent record about her father to understand why. Why would he commit suicide? There's no spoiler alert necessary here. This detail is revealed almost immediately at the outset of the novel. So at the beginning of the novel, she's living alone with her mother. And that's when Ai Ming shows up. Ai Ming comes to live with them, and we learn that she's the daughter of a man, a music composer named Sparrow. So, what's the connection between Marie and Ai Ming? Ai Ming's father, Sparrow, was Kai's music instructor. Her arrival engenders the resurgence of interest and an attempt to reconstruct the lives of their respective fathers. 
which Ai Ming in part facilitates because she's able to read and understand both Mandarin and Cantonese. She becomes a kind of interpreter for Marie, and of course for the reader, for us. Still, after Ai Ming leaves, Marie has even more unanswered questions, so she travels back to Hong Kong, to her father's old residence. While there, she requests a copy of his file, that is a the file that they have on her father, and she discovers Sparrow's composition, which was dedicated to her father. Okay. She recognizes the tune because Ai Ming had sung it to her, to Marie, years earlier. Then she travels to Shanghai, and when she travels there, she tries to have this composition performed. She has some anxiety about it, but her father's colleagues reassure her by commenting on how remembrance has, quote, two meanings, to recall, record, and art. The composition is both a record, a form of recalling, and an art form, something we might more wholly apply to the novel. In this pursuit, Marie comes to a realization, several actually, but this one in particular. The family story doesn't actually have an ending. She has to make her own story, her own historical record, a counterpoint to the one that she's received. And it seems Marie is arguably the principal narrator writing the account we're actually reading, and that that is her record, her own historical record. So she says, quote, It's a simple thing to write a book. Simpler, too, when the book already exists and has been passed on from person to person in different versions, permutations, and variations. No one person can tell a story this large, and there are, of course, missing chapters in my own book of records, the life of Ai Ming, the last days of my father, end quote. So through Marie, we slowly track their family histories, back to the Cultural Revolution, back to the Tiananmen Square Massacre, and even further back in time because of the legacy of the Book of Records. Well, what is the Book of Records, you might be asking, and why am I pausing to talk about this or emphasize these records, aside from my own personal obsession with archives? More of this in another episode. Two more details are required here, and we have to go back in time and further into the core, the center part of the novel, Sparrow's aunt, named Swirl, married a man named Wen the Dreamer. He's a poet, and he seduces Swirl through narrative form, specifically using a text that is actually called the Book of Records. This is a literal book that's referenced throughout the novel, although there are other forms of records that appear, like the photo Ai Ming carries with her. It's a photo of the three main characters featured in the second section of the book, Kai Sparrow and a third character named Zhu Li, who is the daughter of Swirl and Wen the Dreamer. The three share experiences in relation to the Shanghai Conservatory. Wen the Dreamer is the principal translator and also contributor to the book. Even so, at various points, the stories of all of the characters become enfolded or integrated into the Book of Records. The Book of Records therefore appears in every generation. It keeps recurring throughout the novel, and it becomes a kind of point of connection between all the characters. So it's 
both a literal thing, but also figurative. The Book of Records, which surfaces in every generation, becomes an emblem of connection across generations, of how families extend the narrative in counterpoint, if you will, through different generations, how memory is stored in the body, and not just in books, not just on paper, and not just transmitted orally through time, of how artistry and love may transcend the violences and turbulence of history, of political regimes, of upheavals, geographical, emotional, and otherwise. So the title of the novel, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, which could be read as a form of protest, or assertion, or as a warning, or as an ordinance, might be read as soulless too. Depends on where we put the emphasis. We could read it as an imperative. Do not say we have nothing. But the we, I think, is a response to someone and suggests inclusion. When everything seems to be lost, do not say we have nothing. We have our bodies with narratives stored within them. Our bodies are also records. They are storehouses of and testaments to trauma and knowledge and family history. And such traumas and knowledge and family history are passed down, often unconsciously. Do not say we have nothing. Our bodies, Tian's novel would seem to suggest, are everything. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast when I give out a recommendation about a book, an author, or something literary in Canada. So today, I've decided I'm going to recommend to you the work of Italian-Canadian poet Gianna Pet Patriarca. I say a poet, but she's also written some fiction, uh, one of these being All My Fallen Angelas. I really love Patriarca's work. It's grounded and smart, funny, forthright, um, open, candid. She doesn't mess around. She balances out those books that romanticize Italian culture. These books kind of make me break out in hives. That is the ones that romanticize Italian culture. I'm thinking of um, Under the Tuscan Sun or Eat, Pray, Love, escapist literature, essentially, where a protagonist takes a, a, a journey to Italy and then they find themselves during the journey, that kind of thing. I, I find that Patriarca is a kind of r- refreshing counterbalance to the, that kind of writing. So, as I say, she's published several collections of poetry, and you'll gather, even by listening to the titles already, what she's looking at or what she examines. I have in front of me uh, Italian Women and Other Tragedies, as the title of one collection, and The Other Daughters for Sale, both of these put out by Guernica Press. So she looks at the predicament of Italian women, Italian-Canadian women. One of my favorite poems is Ode to Balls. It is a somewhat direct title, but you'll get the point when you hear a few lines from this particular poem. Here's a, a, a little sample. I could say his ego is the size of Los Angeles, but that would be kind. Let me speak of his genitals. 
He was always admiring his in mirrors, shiny tiles on bathroom walls, even the toaster when it was strategically placed. I often moved the espresso pot out of the way. They were everywhere. I bumped into them from across the room. I found them in open drawers or lounging romantically on the balcony floor. How he loved them. That's Jana Patriarca's Ode Balls from Daughters for Sale. And I recommend this and Italian Women and Other Tragedies among her other work. I hope you tune in to the next podcast when I'll be talking about Lorena Gale's Je Me Souviens. In the meantime, thanks very much for joining me today on this episode of Getting Lit with Linda. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.